Our New Testament reading is from John 9. We're going to start off with verses 1 through 12 and then um, do verses 35 through 41. Um, It begins on page 582 of the paper Bible. As he passed by, he saw a man, a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he, so he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is, he is like him. Then how, were you, then how were your eyes opened? So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and, he, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to preach on the whole book of John chapter 9 today, but it's 41 verses long, and so... um, We'll, we'll cover it all, but I, am, I did uh, keep some of the reading out to, to shorten the time. Um, so we're back in John 9. That's what we're doing. Um, this story that we're looking at is one of the major signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that John makes uh, a point to call these things signs rather than miracles. He calls these signs because he wants us to see uh, that they are pointing to something, right? Just like the sinicades that we have out down by Stony Brook with the big arrow on them. You know, they're not an end in themselves. You're not supposed to just stand there and look at them, but you're supposed to, to go where they're pointing. And that's what these signs are all about. They're intended to point us somewhere. They're intended to point us to faith in Christ. They're written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So this story the story of the healing of the blind man, is not just a story about healing. Uh, It's not just about a healing, at least, but it's a story about Jesus' whole purpose on earth. It's a story about what Jesus came to do. It tells us in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Okay, so that's the, the purpose of this. In that sense... This man's testimony, the blind man who's healed, is in a way the testimony of every person 
who has their spiritual sight restored. That's why we make a big deal of what he says. The, these, his words are lyrics to Amazing Grace, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So I want us to, to figure this out today. I want us to see how this sign points to Jesus. I want us especially to look at this sign this morning and see what we can learn from it about faith in Christ. And I think there's three easy things. We can learn, first of all, the meaning of spiritual blindness. What is, what is this passage talking about when it says spiritual blindness? Then we can see the depth of spiritual blindness, how far that goes in our life. And finally, we can see what it is like to have our sight restored. How do we respond once we receive sight? So before we do that, though, before we talk about the meaning of spiritual blindness, I just want to address something that we find here in the first couple of verses of our passage. If you've got your Bibles, pull them out, uh, read along with me. Verse, verse 1, it says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, in that question, you might realize that the disciples are making an assumption already. When they ask the question, they're assuming that this guy's suffering was the result of somebody's sin. They're saying this guy's problem was either from his sin or from his parents' sin. And later on in the passage, the Pharisees do the exact same thing. In verse 34, when they're getting into an argument with him, the Pharisees say to the blind man, you were born in utter sin, and yet you would teach us. There's this idea that suffering has a cause behind it, that it's somebody's fault. But Jesus pretty immediately dismisses that. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And I just want to think for a second about the way we view suffering in this world. Because it's true. If you read Scripture, you will find that there are places where the Bible says sometimes our suffering in this life is connected to our sin. Sometimes our suffering is connected to sin. In fact, the entire narrative of the Old Testament, as you watch the people of Israel wax and wane in their faith, faithfulness, you see once they finally rebel against the Lord, it leads to all kinds of suffering in their life. It leads to all kinds of, of pain in their experience of the day-to-day. -day. But the Bible also teaches, if you read it, that there is, it's, it's false to assume there is a one-to-one -one correlation between our suffering and, and our behavior. In fact, sometimes it seems like it's the opposite that's the case, right? If you've been reading our yearly Bible reading, uh, we read Psalm 73 this week. And in that psalm, uh, the psalmist is looking out on the world, and he says, it really looks like it's sinners who have it the best in life. He says, I was envious and arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pain until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They have not, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Right? So the Bible shows us that there isn't this one-to-one -one correlation between our behavior and how easy our life is. And yet, even though that's the case, even though the Bible tells us not to assume you have problems because you're bad, occasionally we see Christians doing this, don't we? You remember it, when Katrina happened? 
there were all these Christian leaders getting on TV saying crazy stuff, saying, well, the reason why they were wiped out was because, you know, New Orleans is, is a, a sinful place, right? They're, they're doing all sorts of bad things, and it's God's judgment on them. Never mind, you know, simple questions like, well, what about all the other cities, right? What about all the other cities that you call sinful, right? Las Vegas is still around. The town that you live in is still around. But that's our natural tendency, isn't it? When we see something bad, we want to assign blame to it. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but I think at least part of the reason is because if we can assign blame, if we can figure out the cause of suffering, then it makes us feel safe. You know, if we can figure out why that happened, then it gives us a sense of control, maybe a sense of security. Well, if, if we can figure out why that happened to them, then maybe we can make sure it doesn't happen to us. But Jesus tells us something totally different. When the disciples ask this question, uh, Jesus shows us there's another way we need to approach suffering. And, and actually, a better verse for this is, is in Luke. In, that, in a story in Luke chapter 13, there's a moment where uh, Jesus is teaching about this tower that fell over. And in the process, it killed 18 people. And, and when he was looking at this, what we would call a natural disaster, he said, do you think that they were any worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He's saying that we can't be certain of why people suffer. We can't come up with a nice reason for why every bad thing happens to someone. But suffering should be a reminder to us that this world is a broken place, that it is full of pain and suffering and often death. And in that response about the tower, he says, rather than wasting time trying to figure out why it happened, we should remember that our lives are fragile. We should remember that our lives are short. We should view those things as a reminder that we need to run to the only one who can save us, that we need to run to him for rescue. And I think there's another message here too, you know, just giving us a, a theology of suffering. And it's from verse one of our chapter. It tells us, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's the first verse. It's the intro to the story. We could read through it and move on. But I think it's important to notice that it tells us Jesus sees this man in his suffering. Jesus doesn't pass by him, but he sees him. He cares about him. He comes to him in his suffering. It's true. Christianity, it can't tell you why all bad things happen. But the message of the cross is the one thing we can't say is it's not because God doesn't care. The message of the cross is that, that God does care about our suffering. In fact, he cared so much that he took on flesh and he entered into our suffering and he died to free us from that suffering. And so I, I hope, you know, whatever you're going through today, whatever might be going on in your life, you can look at this verse and remember that Jesus sees you. He knows what's going on. He hasn't abandoned you. He cares. All right, so that's really just a preface. Um, 
with that said, I, I want to kind of talk about the main issue in this passage, which is spiritual blindness. Um, and spiritual blindness is a, a metaphor that is pretty common. We talk about it a lot when we are discussing faith versus not having faith. But what does it really mean? Well, the idea behind spiritual blindness is that there is some level of reality that we don't see, right? That's, that's what it means to be blind. There's some part of existence that we can't totally perceive. And one pastor that uh, I heard, he compared it to the way when you're going kind of from a lower life form to a higher life form, there's added perception. I mean, for instance, like a plant, okay? A plant is alive, but it doesn't totally get anything that's going on around it. And then you move up to a higher life form like an animal. And an animal is, is alive and it does sense the people around it and the forces in the environment. But then you move up from there and you have human beings. And we're alive and we sense the people around us. But not only that, we also sense morality, right? We sense value behind these things. We sense meaning and purpose in the world. Well, Scripture tells us there's one level up above that, and that there is God, and that God lives in a spiritual reality that most of us can't perceive. And the reason why we can't perceive that reality is because of our sin, because our sin has blinded us to it. And so in that way, uh, the story of this blind man is very similar to our own spiritual experience. These, very, these first few verses, in a way, describe each and every one of us. It tells us this man was blind from birth. From the moment he came into this world, he was blind. He was hopeless. He had no expectation of healing. He was wandering through the synagogue. He didn't even know that Jesus was in there, Right? He didn't know who Jesus was. He wasn't concerned about finding a way to Jesus. It's not like some of these other stories where people are, are pressing in towards him. He wasn't even looking to be healed. And I don't think that's too different from the way Paul describes us. You remember Ephesians chapter 2? It says, we're dead in our trespasses. We are spiritually blind from birth. We're not considering the options. Paul says we're dead. We have no hope. There's no chance of us being restored. We're not looking for Jesus. In fact, we're totally unaware of Jesus and unaware of our need from him. And so that's the basic idea. That's what it means to be spiritually blind. But how deep does that stuff go? That's the second thing I want to talk about, the depth of our spiritual blindness. So let's, let's keep looking at the story. All right, so Jesus, he heals this man. The guy washes, he can see. And when he gets back to the synagogue, it tells us that people are shocked, right? They, can't, they can hardly even recognize him. They're amazed by it. And they're so amazed that they go and they go get the religious leaders. They say, you got to come see this. I don't think they were trying to be mean. I think they, they just genuinely were impressed and, and astonished. And so they bring these Pharisees and they're not impressed. Right? The Pharisees instantly are irritated. 
They're questioning, and they, they come to the conclusion pretty fast that, well, maybe this didn't even happen. Maybe this miracle isn't what they're saying it was. And so they go first to talk to the blind man's parents. All right, we didn't read this part of the story, but that's what happens. The first stop in their interrogation, the Pharisees, they talk to the man, and then they talk to his parents. And, after, uh, and here's how it goes when they talk to the parents. They ask, how did this man uh, receive his sight? Was he really born blind? And in verse 20 it says, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. And then John tells us in this little side note, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. All right, so the parents, when the Pharisees come, they say they don't know. And I'm pretty sure they're lying about this. And as you you read through different commentaries, as you look at what other people say, it seems very unlikely that they would not be, know the story. I mean, just think about it practically speaking, right? If you had a son who had been blind from birth and he came home one day, you know, how would that conversation go? You know, hey, honey, how was your day? Like, oh, it was pretty good. You know, some guy came and made new eyes for me and now I can see. Wow, that's great. What else happened? You know, I'm sure that they would get some details. Who did it? That's amazing. That's, but, but no, they say, we don't know. We don't know. You're going to have to ask him about it. And John tells us the reason why they said that was because they were afraid. They were afraid because in this synagogue, they had already said, they had heard these rumors of Jesus being thought of as the Messiah, and, and the word was out that if you thought that, you would have to leave. If you placed any faith in this guy, you were going to be kicked out of the community. And they didn't want that. They didn't want to risk giving that up. And I think this shows us one of the the first things about our spiritual blindness. Uh, Following Jesus is a costly thing. Following Jesus always is going to cost us something. I was just talking to a man the other day, um, and he told me that he had decided to follow Jesus, but he knew that doing that meant he was going to have to end this uh, sexual relationship that he was in. Um, he knew that, it was, that obedience to Jesus was going to cost him this, this part of his life. But he did it anyway. He chose to follow Jesus, and when he did, all of his friends thought he was crazy. They said, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? And as a result, they shunned him. That's what he said. He said following Jesus ended up costing him his relationship and all of his friends. But the other thing he said was it was worth it. Fear of the cost is one of the major obstacles to our spiritual sight. When we see what it's going to cost us, a lot of times we come up right to the edge and we say, I'm not willing to cross that line. I'm not willing to make that kind of sacrifice. But if you look at it from the other side, what Scripture tells us is it's not really 
the cost that's the problem. What's really the problem is that you're blind to what God has to offer. You're missing out on the treasures of what Jesus has to give. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in the end. Or have you ever heard the parable of the treasure in the field? Have you heard that one? Where it says a man finds this treasure in the field and immediately he goes and he sells everything that he has to buy that field. The part of the point of that story is come purchasing the kingdom, being a part of the kingdom costs him everything that he has. But the other point of that story is it was worth more than everything he had, right? The point is there's a great cost to following God, but when you see the wealth of the gospel, it's an easy decision. But our spiritual blindness runs deep. We're blinded by the fear of the cost. We're blind to the wealth of God's grace. That's one aspect of our blindness. The other side of it is as we keep going through this story. Okay, so back to the story. After the Pharisees interrogate the parents, they come back to talk to the man again. And you got to love this guy. Let's look at, let's open up verse 26 of chapter 9. I think this guy is probably one of the most interesting minor characters that we find in all of the New Testament. I mean, you just got to, he's got a lot of fight, you know? He, he has a lot of attitude. Look, look at verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? <laughs> right? Of course they don't, right? He knows they don't. He knows that they have bad intentions, but he's kind of sticking it to them, right? He's, he's letting them have it. And then as you look at their response, though, there's this, there's this great irony that comes. They reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. So they say they're the disciples of Moses. And it's worth noting that wasn't a common way of saying you were a Pharisee or even a Jewish person. This was just something they were saying in response to him. They were they were kind of showing him this superiority. We are disciples of Moses. We're disciples of, of the guy who wrote the scriptures. You're disciples of this new guy and this new thing, but, but we follow the law. We follow this thing that's been around forever. But do you see the irony here? That these Pharisees, they're so focused on the law. They're so focused on looking at the words of Scripture. They're so focused on, on looking at what Moses wrote, and yet they're totally blind to the one that Moses was pointing to. They're totally blind to the one that all the Scriptures Moses wrote was trying to, to show them. Jesus is the one that the law points to. But the law made him blind to it. Their goodness 
their sense of righteousness had blinded them. And it, it does the same thing for us. Now, uh, there's not a lot of people in JP, not a lot of people in, in Roxbury that I know that are like really obsessed with Old Testament law. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a big focus of ours. Uh, but I do think there are a lot of people who have this innate sense of their own righteousness. I think there's a lot, I think all of us, in fact, come into the world feeling like we're basically good. You know, that we're good enough, that we're, that we're good even without Jesus. And self-righteousness, that kind of self-righteousness, is probably the biggest obstacle to spiritual sight. Our sense of our own goodness is probably the thing that gets most in the way of us seeing Jesus for who he really is. And it's funny because usually we think of it the other way around, don't we? When we think of the kind of people who are least likely to come to Jesus, we don't think of, of the good people, right? We think of the bad people. It's the bad people that make the most interesting conversion stories. It's the bad people who get the movies made and the books written. Those are the stories we hear and we're amazed by, right? Like the story of John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. You've probably heard his story before, that he was a slave trader. And then he came to faith and by the end of his life was an abolitionist, right? A a voice fighting against that evil because he was transformed. We look at the criminals. We look at the wild sinners. And we think of that as like the really impressive kinds of conversions. But you know, in ministry, I found that it's usually not the bad people that are furthest from Jesus. It's usually the good people. It's usually those people who think they have it all together that are the furthest ones from God. That's the point of the prodigal son story, right? I mean, a lot of times when we read it, we get focused on the story of the the younger son who goes and wastes all his money and comes to his senses and then returns to the father and the father welcomes him. And that's a great part of the story as well. But the point of the story is all about the older brother. Remember? That when when the younger son returns home, there's another older brother who's standing outside the feast and he's grumbling and he's complaining and he says, I've been here the whole time. I never left. I never wasted anything. And here you are having a big celebration. You've slaughtered this calf for my young and reckless and wild brother. But I've done everything you've asked. I'm the one that deserves the feast. And that story ends how? Do you remember? Well, that's the end. It ends with the elder brother standing outside. Standing outside the celebration. In these Pharisees, we see that essence of spiritual blindness. It's those people who say, I can see. It's the people who say, I'm I'm just fine on my own. I've done all the things that God asked me to do. I'm a good person. I'm good even without God. But Jesus tells us that that type of goodness is just a show. That type of law-following righteousness is really just paint over a tombstone. You know, it cleans up the outside. It makes you look nice to the world. You look okay to other people. But inside, it's just masking the fact that your heart is desperately sick. Inside, it's just masking the fact that, like Paul said, we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses. That's the depth of our spiritual blindness. 
That's how deep it goes. We, we can't, on one hand, we can't see the wealth of God's mercy. We can't see the goodness of his promises. We're blinded by the cost, and so we don't want to cross the line. And then on the other hand, we can't see the sin in our hearts. We can't see our need for the gospel. We're blinded by our self-righteousness. And so in the end, we're left standing outside the celebration. But finally, I want to turn our attention to the last person in the story. I want us to look at the man who's healed. And I want us to just consider the response. How do we respond once our eyes have been opened? How do we see once our sight has been restored? So this man, he's healed. And he's not just healed a little. He's healed in an amazing fashion. If you read the story, if you have a chance to go back and, and read through the whole thing, you see the people are shocked. They say, nothing like this is, has ever been done before. They tell us that this miracle, uh, you know, there's even a sense here. It says that, that Jesus, he spits in the mud and he, he makes some, some clay and he, he puts it on this, this guy's eyes. And there's a hint in the text that, that this is pointing us back. Not just pointing us forward to show us what Jesus is coming to do, but pointing us back to who Jesus really is. It points us back to the story of Genesis, where God takes the dust and, and forms a man. There's this hint in the miracle, that what's, what Jesus is doing is, this is a creative miracle. This is unlike anything the world has ever seen before, because it's a miracle where he is revealing that he is both the creator and the redeemer. That he is the one who is, is forming new sight. He's making something brand new, but at the same time, he's restoring all things. In the moment of this miracle, he literally gives this guy new eyes, to see the world, to see its light. But spiritually, from this moment on, he sees Jesus, the light of the world. Right? He opens his eyes both physically and spiritually. And, and it's worth noting, right? as the story goes along, this guy's faith kind of comes progressively. So first, when he's healed, he actually doesn't see Jesus in that moment, right? Jesus puts the stuff on his eyes and he sends him away, and then Jesus is gone by the time he gets back. He doesn't totally get who Jesus is. He doesn't know all the facts about him. And first, as you read the story, he says he doesn't know him. Then he says, well, I th he's a prophet. And then it, as it goes on, he's willing to say he's of God. And finally, when he encounters him at the very end of the story, that's when he bows down and worships. But even then, even in that moment at the climax of our story, the blind man still has a long way to go understanding who Jesus is, right? Jesus still hasn't been crucified. He hasn't been resurrected. There's a lot more to his faith that has to come. But we know from that very first moment when his sight came back that he had faith. Because even when these Pharisees come to him, when they start to pressure him, when they start to press on him, when they start to threaten him, and eventually they do cast him out of the synagogue. There's never any moment when this guy's willing to turn his back on Jesus. There's not a second where he's, he's willing to denounce who Jesus is, right? He says, I don't know all the answers, 
Right? His famous profession. It's in, in verse 25. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He says, I don't know all the facts, but I know I used to be blind, and I'm not blind anymore. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to denounce the guy. And I think this is a great, a good picture, a good illustration of what new faith kind of looks like for us. You know, the, when you first come to faith, there's immediately this conviction, right? There's immediately this, this passion, but you don't always know all the details, right? The newest converts are often the people that have the most excitement. They're the ones that are telling the most people, but usually they're not the ones who have the most answers. They're usually the ones that can't tell you all the finer points of theology. You know, my wife, Melissa, she came to faith when she was in veterinary school, and she was immediately just zealous for, for Jesus. She was, you know, going to all these extra church services, going to all the things that were offered, and she eventually is like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a missionary, and I'm going to tell everybody about this. And she went to tell her pastor, and, and her pastor at the time said, you know, that's great. That's a really good idea. But maybe before you go be a missionary, you should go to seminary or something. <laughs> maybe you should learn what you believe before you start to tell other people about it. And I'm really thankful he told her that because, you know, that's, that's where he met. But the point is, <laughs> knowledge takes time. But even from the very first moment of conversion, there is conviction. Even from the very first moment your eyes are open, you, there is a conviction of, of those two truths that we are talking about. First, that we were blind. That, that, that we were sinners. That we, we start to see the thing that the Pharisees couldn't see. That, that we are not good enough on our own. That we're a mess. And then the other conviction that comes with faith is, now we see. And what do we see? We see the beauty of the gospel. We see the treasures of his grace. We see the good news of his kingdom. We see how much better Jesus is. We see Jesus. We see Jesus who is the light of the world. And I was thinking this week as I was reading this passage, when Jesus first answers his disciples, they ask him whose fault this was, and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And there's truth. I mean, he's, he's saying that it's the cause of his suffering was not his sin. But the truth was, that man had sinned, right? And his parents had sinned. Everyone on earth had sinned. But, but Jesus, weirdly, is the truth behind that passage, right? That Jesus was the one who suffered, not because of his sin. But Jesus suffered for our sin. And, and the gospel message is that on the, Christ, on the cross, the light of the world was enshrouded in darkness so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And not just displayed in him, but accomplished in him. That Jesus suffered and he died and he rose again so that by having faith in him, we can finally see God. We can finally have our eyes opened to see God. And so that's the, la the very last thing. The last thing I want to say, and I'm, and I'm done. When, when Jesus heals this man, what happens? John, for some reason, wants us to notice that he says, go wash in the pool, which means sent. 
So Jesus, he sends them to go wash in this pool. And then Jesus leaves. And you notice that not only is he sent to the pool to wash, but it turns out that he's also sent to this community with his testimony. He's sent to his own family to tell them what's been done to him. And then eventually he's sent before these religious leaders to proclaim the good news of what's happened. And I think there, there is some kind of lesson for us there. I think there's some kind of, of something that we need to notice, which is Jesus never opens your eyes without sending you as well. That Jesus never opens your eyes without also sending you on a mission. Or put it this way, if you're a Christian in this room and your eyes have been opened, then you have a message to proclaim. If you can see your sin, if you know the goodness and mercy of God's grace, then you have good news to declare. And this place, this city, is the place you're supposed to do it. That there are infinite opportunities for you in this community, in your family, with other people who who think they know the truth. You have a message to proclaim. And sometimes that's going to be difficult. Sometimes it, it will be costly. But I think the final thing we need to see this morning is if our eyes are really open to see Christ's worth, then there is no cost that's too great. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you opened the eyes of the blind. Father, you saw us when we weren't looking for you. You came to us and you made us new. But Lord, I pray for those here who who don't see you. Maybe for those who are still searching. Maybe for those who who hear me saying we're all spiritually blind and they say that sounds like garbage. (laughs) Lord, I pray that you you would reveal to them the depths of our blindness. I pray that you would reveal to them our their their fears. But most of all, I pray that you would persuade them of your goodness and your mercy. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.